Happy Sabbath. We are glad that you are here with us. We're also heartbroken. And we are heartbroken because this week has been a difficult week. It's been a week in which, once again, uh, gunfire rings through our schools. And I know that the temptation is there always to politicize it, to retreat to our preferred corners and lob grenades and arguments that really don't do anything to address the situation of grieving parents. I think, Joey, it's been a difficult week because both of us have children who are in elementary school, and we drop them off at the academy day after day thinking that they're going to be safe. And I just, I can't imagine the pain of those 19 sets of parents that are grieving the death of their kids or the other two families that are grieving the death of two adults. Um, I do think Christianity has something to say if we worship the Prince of Peace. And I think we need to continue pushing, and not politically, but through our morals, through our ethics, through our beliefs in peace and in communication and in working through solutions. And this idea, this dream that the prophet Isaiah has where our weapons of war will be transformed into both pruning hooks or plowshares. That's the ultimate goal that God has for our world, a world where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. So find somebody uh, this week. Love them. If you're a parent, love your children and pray for those who, who continue to grieve as we suffer with unspeakable violence in our land. Let's go ahead and pray. God, our hearts are heartbroken. Once again, it seems like violence has become such a current experience in our country, and we've become desensitized to it. And we almost know what's going to happen, Lord. Uh, the event occurs, the endless news cycle, the arguments are rehashed and everyone retreats to their corners, but no change happens today, Lord. Today we pray that you stay with those people that are grieving the devastating death of their kids. Father, as parents, we don't know. We can't even imagine what that feels like. And so we pray that you be especially close in the lives of those families, that you be especially closed to that community in Uvalde, that you be especially close to those of us who continue to suffer and struggle with violence, that you be close to the families of people who have lost loved ones through gun violence. I can't imagine how many emotions come up after these these events happen, and it seems like they happen with more and more frequency. Lord, we don't have the answers, so when the problem is too big for us, we do the only thing that we can do, and that is we say, God, we give it to you. Hmm. Help our hearts be broken for what breaks your heart. Help our minds be attuned to what you would have us do. Help the church continue being the conscience of our country, give us the strength that when we need to speak truth to power, for we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Tough week, huh, Joey? Yeah, tough week. Just it, on the heels of other shootings, to, to have this happen at a school again, it just brings back so many other memories and so many other times where this has happened. And underlines again the brokenness that that exists in this world and um it's not an excuse because god has also called us to be peacemakers not just peaceful people but people who create peace in this world and so um as we look at this horrible violence it just underlines again our role and responsibility as people of god to be people who create peace in our context and in our world that's I, I that's a beautiful way of of saying it Joey. I we had uh we had obviously the shooting in Buffalo uh which 
focused primarily on on African-American brethren. We had a shooting in El Paso, which was also racially motivated. Mm. We were celebrating a 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook. Mm. Uh, So it seems like Columbine began this litany of stories that become more and more commonplace. And the danger is always there that we become desensitized to this, that we just say, well, it's part and parcel of living in America. And we forget that there's real stories and real brokenness and broken hearts. And so I think I think we are called, as you've so beautifully said, to be peacemakers. Mm-hmm. And the church then has to step up and say, hey, we are not only going to be peacemakers, but we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus mm-hmm. as we minister to people who are experiencing the devastating pain that violence brings. And we're also going to begin to serve as accountability partners for a society and a system that is broken. Uh, Whatever your position is on any of these issues, Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea that our society has some serious, serious problems Mm -hmm. and polarizations, I think, wherever you are on the political spectrum, you would agree with that. And so the the church has to speak as the conscience of our country and says, this isn't the will of God for us. Mm. So true, because it is, like you said, so easy to become desensitized to this, to violence. I mean, when, when the war in or the fighting in Ukraine began, it was all over the news where attention was on it. But as it's lingered on, I hardly even see it on my newsfeed anymore. I have to actually search for updates about it. It's just so easy to be desensitized. And like you were saying, to get into the space of, well, this is so overwhelming. It's too big of a problem. What could I possibly do and do nothing? And yet God has called us, like you said, to be the conscious, to be his hands and feet of care to this world and to be peacemakers in this world. And, um, and it also shows that um, we, as the people of God, are not immune to this violence. I mean, the stories that we're going to read today, there is struggle and strife within the family of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the womb, there is struggle and <laughs> yeah. strife. So we are we also are not immune to the challenges the rest of this world experiences, but that should make us even more empathetic and willing to come alongside and like you said, be the conscious of this of this world. Yeah, and Joey, empathy, it seems to me that empathy ought to be allergic to platitudes mm. because so often we kind of, either we retreat to our corners and we have the inability of listening thoughtfully to one another or it becomes so overwhelming, as you're saying, that we offer our platitudes. How mm. many times do we offer thoughts? We know what happens, right? Something bad happens and we say, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Mm. And not that thoughts and prayers are not good. I mean, I love people praying for me and thinking about me. But these thoughts and prayers ought to be accompanied with empathetic action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's not enough to just say those things. We actually have to follow through. If we are actually putting our thoughts and our prayers toward it, that's a different context altogether. So, yeah, that's a good point. So, Jacob and Esau, um, as you said, violence. Violence kind of has been a scourge that has been part of the human experience as long as we've been on this planet. Um, it, It was interesting how... The Lord speaks um, to Rebecca, and I, I just I can't imagine. You know, this mother has uh, this dream, uh, and you know Isaac has this this idea of finally being the one that um, continues this legacy, this long legacy that Abraham has. And then the Lord speaks to Rebekah and says in verse 23, two nations are in your womb Mm. and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Um, Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were two twins in her womb. Their first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. 
so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Hmm. So from the outset, right? Conflict. Yeah. Two, two nations struggling. Hmm. Um, what do we do? What do we do in, in the face of, of this idea of struggle? Because hmm. it seems like the experience of struggle, both individually and obviously on a macro level with nations, as the text begins to talk about, mm -hmm. is part of the human experience. Yeah. Uh, so I struggle with people who I live with, who I work with, who I love. I struggle my country struggles, my family struggles, mm. my favorite sports team struggles. It, fe it feels like conflict is yeah. built into the experience of being human. And yet... It, I think there's a healthy way to manage conflict and there's an unhealthy way mm. uh, to manage conflict. What are some ways in which we can manage this conflict, these struggles in, in a healthy manner? Wow. Well, it seems like the Bible has more examples of unhealthy ways to manage conflict Correct. than healthy. I mean, just these two brothers struggling reminds me of one of the stories we began this mm -hmm. this uh, quarter on with the struggle between um, Cain and Abel, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that sibling rivalry that led eventually to one brother murdering the other mm -hmm. brother. Um, this one, this violence doesn't go that far, but it comes close. It mm -hmm. comes close. I mean, Esau definitely had murderous thoughts mm -hmm. of... of of what to do to uh, to uh, to Jacob, so there there definitely is that strife. Yeah, it seems like ever since sin, there is that conflict really is inevitable. Um, as far as healthy ways to confront conflict or to to challenge conflict, I think one place to start is by realizing that conflict is inevitable. Mm. That we're going to have conflict, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, one of our um, colleagues at this church. He sent a text out to all of us reminding us of that. Um, I don't remember the exact quote that he sent, but the idea that leaders should not be surprised by conflict. We should expect conflict. And yet there are ways to navigate it so that it can, it can lead to healing and wholeness rather than brokenness. Mm. But it does take, it does take both sides being willing to come together and work together through that conflict, yeah. which is not always easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the ways in which I think we, we come together and we recognize the inevitability of conflict is that we notice that conflict is always going to brew where differences exist. Mm. So uh, Esau and Jacob um, are different, and the text tells us, right, one is... I mean, I don't know what it would have been like to see little Esau come out, uh, mm. red and hairy, and then the other one comes out hairless and grabbing onto to his brother's heel. Yeah. Um, you were mentioning Cain and Abel also kind of about as different as two people can be. And that's, I think, where the conflict stems from. Mm. It stems from looking at differences, at disadvantages, mm. um, rather than looking at our differences mm. As potential things that we can leverage to grow and to be more complete. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah, in both cases, like you pointed out, there is, there are definitely differences that that not just in the way they look, but the way that they see the world mm -hmm. and how they um, operate. Right. The, the the I love the way that the um, passage describes them. Verse 27, the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Um, and that that conflict is even extended to the parents mm -hmm. because Isaac has a taste for wild game and loved Esau, but J Rebecca loved Jacob, you know? And there's that, those differences that lead to tension, definitely. I think another source of tension between people is um, when our brokenness rubs up against other people's brokenness. Mm -hmm. I think all of us have certain people that just are much harder to get along with than others, right? Mm -hmm. There is something about them that rubs us the wrong way. And it seems like part of that is there is a brokenness. We've talked about this before, that all of us have our pet sins. We have our pet brokenness. We mm -hmm. talked about... Abraham's sin, right, of trying to take take God's 
um, plan for him and take control of it and, and navigate it on his own. We all have those those situations. And when our brokenness rubs up against perfectly against somebody else's brokenness, it seems to just explode. Mm -hmm. And I do think with siblings, I don't know if this is your experience or not, with siblings, they have a way of poking at our brokenness um, because they know us so well, yeah. right? <laughs> they have a way of rubbing against and really pushing the wrong spots at the wrong times or the right spots at the right time, how, whatever your perspective is, to really activate that anger and that frustration. Um, and, and yet, um, it doesn't have to lead to, to, to a broken relationship. It can actually heal, lead to healing and to growth and, and all of that. So seeing these differences as um, an opportunity not only to grow, but to figure out what places I am broken in and how I can work on those places, I think, is, as you're mentioning, is a really helpful thing. Another thing I think that, that is helpful is realizing that God has a plan for us mm. in spite of our brokenness. And we yeah. get into trouble when we try to cover up mm. this brokenness separate from the plan that God has for us. So I'm, I'm kind of processing this out loud. Isaac has heard the promise mm. um, and Rebecca has heard the promise. Uh, God says, hey, uh, you're going to have two nations in your womb and the older will serve the younger. And yet it seems like Isaac is forgetting that or maybe because he sees more of Esau within him, he, he decides to show preference for Esau. Rebecca, on the other hand, perhaps because she has heard the voice of God, of God speaking and making this promise, is showing partiality for Isaac. So it seems like the parents have forgotten that God already has a plan. And mm. furthermore, it seems like Isaac and like this forgetfulness of Isaac and Rebecca has now moved and been passed on to Jacob because mm. the passage that follows, mm -hmm. uh, you'll have... Jacob trying to do something that has become pretty apparent throughout the stories that we've been reading, and that is trying to take things into his own hands. That's so true. And it all stems from not that lack of self-awareness, like you talked about, of our brokenness and covering it up. Mm -hmm. And really what we see throughout as we go through this lesson and all the different stories of this lesson is God actually uncovering Jacob's brokenness by actually making him conf confront that brokenness in the in the form of his father-in-law mm -hmm. and his father-in-law doing the same thing to him mm -hmm. that he does to Esau and it just just as a way of God sort of uncovering and saying this is who you are inside you this thing that you see in this other man is inside of you so there is that healing that that needs to happen but yeah it it does seem like they they <laughs> everybody seems to mishear God's mm -hmm. God's um, command and just goes to show that we humans hear what we want to hear. Mm, right? mm. It's like, I mean, I, we've done this. I've done this many times. I mean, I, I could take this passage. Okay. Two nations are within your room and two peoples within <laughs> you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And if I want to be, if I love the older more than the younger, then maybe I think, well, the first shall be last, the last shall be mm -hmm. first. So if I'm serving, then he, <laughs> he's going to be the servant. The servant needs to be the head of the household. So the oldest will be, you know, we can make rationale we do, we for do. whatever we want to do. So yeah, we hear what we want to hear. And I think that that penchant for justification is what drives Jacob to kind of start living up to his name. Mm. Um, so you have 29... Um, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. By the mm. way, this is a wonderful play on words 
with both Esau and what he's his redness, what he's cooking, and uh, his descendants, which will be the Edomites. Yeah. And Jacob replies, first sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stool. He stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. Mm. So Esau despised his birthright. Mm. So a lot of power, I think, that, that we have in, in the world of Scripture that has to do with a birthright. Mm. And it has to do with the way they understood language of blessing and curses. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when a, a Jew and when somebody within the people of, of Israel either bless someone or curse someone. It wasn't just something to say for you to feel good or to be to be frightened. It was actually, they believed that words carry the power to create. And mm. so when you spoke something, you brought about that reality. You participated in this creative action that brought forth this new state of affairs. And that's why I think the birthright is so important, because Mm -hmm. what Esau and Jacob are doing is they're negotiating or Mm -hmm. they're trying to have, uh, in this case, Isaac speak into their lives and create Mm -hmm. a state of affairs, forgetting, as you've mentioned, that God has already spoken Mm -hmm. into their lives and created a state of affairs. And so I think a lot of times we hear people or we choose people around us because we think that they help us create a state of affairs or we help we believe that they help us to affirm our identity Mm. or to create an identity without realizing that god has already spoken and brought forth a a plan and a state of affairs for our life and it gets really dangerous Mm -hmm. when we surround ourselves with voices uh, that are not in line with what God's plan for our life is. Wow, that is that is incredibly powerful. That the reason why we feel the need to pull in other voices to create our identity is we forget that God has already mm-hmm. spoken our identity to us, that we are already children of God, that we are already affirmed and loved and we belong. All of these things that all of us search for our identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, God has already given that to us. And when we forget that is when we start to manipulate situations mm-hmm. and try desperately to grasp for, for these things from other places, which we see happening here because they have already forgotten mm-hmm. what God has already spoken into their lives. That's so powerful. Because Jacob takes this opportunity. It's it's interesting because Esau is framed as the more powerful man, right? He's the hunter. Right. He's the man of the outdoors. And yet in this context, Jacob has all the power. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one with the food. He's the one with the red stuff, the stew. Um, and And yet in that situation, talking about all the things that we could do wrong when we deal with conflict. He uses his position of power to manipulate his brother, Mm. to take from him what he wants, Mm -hmm. right? And honestly, there are so many times I can think of in conflict where I've operated the same way, where I looked for an advantage in the conflict so I could get what I could take from the other person what I wanted. Mm. And as long as I took what I wanted, I feel like the conflict was resolved well on my behalf. But as we know, if we want to have a relationship with the other person at all, that never works, right? I mean, you can win the battle, but you'll lose the yeah. war. If we're having a conflict with our spouse, if we take use our power to take what we want to prove that they were wrong, I mean, you know this. Um, it doesn't ever <laughs> it doesn't work out. Right. Well. It, doesn't it doesn't end, end well. well, right? Because you win the argument, but you lose a relationship. And mm-hmm. I think the reason why we do what you exact, what you've mentioned, is... Because we think that by controlling the conflict, Mm. we can escape our brokenness. Mm. So think about it. Like Mm. all of us have these insecurities Mm. that we're dealing with. And Jacob's insecurity is pretty evident. I mean, it's built into his name. I don't know who chose these names, but it's like, (laughs) man, Rebecca, you must not have loved him that much. I mean, hey, good. hi, I have this little baby boy and I'm going to call him the liar. Um, and so Jacob grows up with this idea, right? With this, mm. just this desperate desire to escape mm. 
this identity as a trickster, as a huckster, as a liar. And to affirm himself and be known as something more. Mm -hmm. And the birthright is in essence his attempt to escape this identity as a liar and a trickster and affirm his identity as someone blessed by God. What Jacob wants more than anything else is God's blessing. The problem is when you try to manipulate and when you try to approach a conflict from your brokenness, mm -hmm. you'll always end up abusing the other and mm. what that does is instead of making the brokenness heal it deepens this the these issues of insecurity and inadequacy that you feel where what you're actually doing is you're affirming this thing that you're trying to escape from mm. so true yeah and in in trying to get what we want to to cover up our brokenness, we end up just exacerbating mm -hmm. our brokenness. I knew um, a, a kid that um, I used to teach as a youth pastor who their default go-to mechanism for whenever they were feeling any kind of strong emotion was anger. Mm. They would just get really angry. And, and yet what they wanted most was of sense of belonging, mm -hmm. sense of comfort. And the anger, but the anger which kept them feeling protected and strong because when we're angry, we feel stronger, actually pushed away the one thing that they wanted mm -hmm. the most, right? By being angry and feeling strong and trying to cover up that need within this, this child, he pushed away the very people who could give him the thing that he desperately wanted the most. And so I remember talking with him and saying, hey, you realize that you are actually, you're actually doing the opposite of what it takes to get the thing that you want. Mm -hmm. You're actually pushing away from the very people that you actually want to pull mm -hmm. in. And I know this because I, I've done that before mm -hmm. too. As a child, I had a temper tantrum. I would throw temper tantrums. Whenever I would feel weak or powerless, Whenever I would feel like I didn't belong, I would get angry. Mm -hmm. And yet that anger worked against the thing that I want the most. And you could say, you know, oh man, him and myself as children, that's so immature, that's such a limited perspective. But how many times do we do this as adults where we work against the very thing that we mm -hmm. want because we're so afraid of that brokenness and, and that need? And we don't believe, Joey, that God has already spoken into our yes. lives. Yes. I I remember it you don't have to be a high schooler or Pastor Joey as a as a toddler throwing a temper tantrum. You you do this as an adult. I remember coming from this church and you know, working in other places around this conference, what it meant what it means to come and serve on on the staff here at this church. And I remember when when I was being interviewed, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting this job. Mm -hmm. I mean, my predecessor had been one of my professors, one of the brightest and most godly men I've I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And so I I have to be honest, I, I remember believing that I had no chance of of filling those those shoes. And when I finally, uh, the search committee and the, the members of the team here saw something in me that I didn't, I didn't see. Um, and that's because I think God had a plan. So I get here and I felt really inadequate. And in trying to find my footing as a, as a member of this team, I thought that my job was always to be the smartest voice in the room. Mm. And that actually was, it, it actually made me uh, I think more ineffective mm -hmm. than than I would have been if I would have just said, "Hey, my job isn't to be the smartest person in the room. My job is to simply live out what God has already called me to be in this place and in this time." And so, I think we, uh, where whether we're children or whether we're you know students or mm -hmm. whether we're adults, 
we're always grappling with these sense of, with these with the sense of inadequacy and that inadequacy only disappears when we when we remind ourselves that God has already spoken into our lives in whatever situation you're in uh-huh. and whatever you need God is placing you in, in that situation because he has a plan for you and the ultimate plan that God has for you is that you prosper and that you have a future that's so powerful Miguel um and all of us struggle with this, right? Because Fuller Fuller um, Youth Institute talks about how um, high school students, those in adolescence, they struggle with three primary questions, which is identity, mm-hmm. belonging, and purpose. But as I think about it, it's not just high schoolers that struggle mm-hmm. with that, right? We all, at certain points in our lives, struggle with that, especially when we transition like, like you did into a new role into a new space, we go into a new community, we join a new family, we get married and we join a new, whenever those, there's those transitions that undercut those, those foundations of, of our identity, belonging and purpose, we tend to grapple with those. And in, and while we grapple with those, we have a choice. We either lean into, like you said, what God has already spoken into our lives and trust that or we go searching elsewhere, like you were talking about, and and try to find that elsewhere. And in doing so, a lot of times we push away, um, we push away those aspects of what God has already spoken into us, and it's so destructive. And yet, that's what we see happening over and over again in Jacob's story, is is this searching for purpose, searching for identity, mm-hmm. searching for meaning when God has already given it mm-hmm. to him. And, you know, sociologists will mention, right, Joey, that we are, are social creatures. Mm. And because we're social creatures, we function much like any other uh, social creature. And if, if you're, I see this with, with pets all the time, right? You're always, uh, my dog, my little dog knows that in her life, I am the alpha in the house. And mm. so she's always searching for me. And I, I feel like in human relationships, particularly as you're mentioning, when we go into a new situation, we're always trying to find out where do we fit in in the pecking order? Mm. Where do I fit? What role do I play? And instead of doing that dance, God is calling Mm. Jacob to simply live out his life in the way that God has called him, because God has already established this, established him. God has already said, I have a plan for you, and I have a purpose for you. And regardless if if you're the youngest or the oldest, or you're hairy or you're hairless, or you like to be near the tents, or you like to be out in the field hunting, my purpose for you will be lived out in spite of all of that. So maybe, and this is just an invitation because it's something I think we all grapple with, as Joey was mentioning, maybe the invitation that we need to continue making to one another is when we are in a new situation, when we enter into this dynamic that we're trying to, let's stop trying to figure out where we fit in the pecking order and then just let's go out and live God's purpose Mm. for our life because God has something for you that nobody else can do. That's so true. That's so true. So then what does that look like practically in our lives? How do we, in those moments of transition, in those moments when we struggle with our identity, belonging, Mm. or purpose, trying to figure out where we belong, where we situate, what our identity is in the new context. Mm. How do we lean in and listen to what God is mm. saying to us? Or in, in this kind of instance, what, what advice could we have given Jacob and Esau um, to do instead of what they did mm. and trying to look elsewhere to find those, those, mm. those, um, the answers to those questions? Well, I think it's, I think it's, it's pretty evident, right, Joey? Um, you and I sometimes get to address our congregation, and when we do, um, you and I get the same, I think, calls from our congregation during the week. And there's two calls that we have, two questions that always get asked here at Loma Linda. Number one, is Randy preaching? Number two, is there potluck? And uh, when it's really tough in the summer, because as we're coming out of pandemic, the answer to both those questions is no. Um, and... There's a lot of pressure, I think, because, you know, our senior pastor is this 
Herculean figure mm-hmm. within Adventism. He's He's been a pastor to me at least since before I came on staff mm-hmm. here. And so there's always a temptation to say, you know, I get to speak from that position and I need to fill Randy's shoes. Mm-hmm. Well, God hasn't called you or me to fill Randy's shoes. God has called mm-hmm. you or me to be the best Joey or the best Miguel that we can be. Yes. God didn't call Isaac to be the firstborn. He didn't call Esau to be the first. He called Isaac to be the best Isaac he could be. And Esau the best Esau he could be. And so I think that's it, it's a really simple piece of advice. Yeah. You are you. And when you live your life, to do that honestly and ethically means to simply be the best Joe or Jill or Bert or Mary that you can be. Mm. And if you do that, then you'll be fulfilling God's purpose for your life. What is astonishing to me is how God deals with our inadequacy. Because mm. next story, and you talked about several stories that the lesson mentions, the very next story, you have... Uh, Isaac being forced <laughs> to send his son away yeah. and Jacob now has to run. And I'm assuming that as he is running, look, the perp, the plan and the idea of him being kind of the head of the household has to be abandoned. And now he's moving and he's in Beersheba. And interestingly enough, Beersheba has some connections with the Abraham story that we can't get into right now, yeah. but he's in Beersheba and I'm assuming that he, he lays down and he's going to go to sleep on this on this rock thinking about how this plan that he had orchestrated isn't going to work out. Mm. And that must sting. Yeah. And how does God deal with that? He, God opens this pathway from earth to heaven. He sends down a ladder. Mm. Um, and I think that's how God is always dealing with with our inadequacies or these moments, right? These moments of failure when we don't live out our best versions of who God has called us to be. And God says, it's okay. I'm going to pull you up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send down a ladder um, because obviously you can't lift yourself up at this point. Wow. wow. So true. That God has called us to be the best versions of us, not the best versions of someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also in this story, we see how sometimes parents contribute to that yeah, dysfunction, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Because um, Rebecca and Isaac both have certain dreams for their favorite mm-hmm. sons. And um, they try to push them into molds to be other things than they want. Than, than God has actually called yeah. them to be. And I wonder how many times we do that to our own children mm. where we put on onto them our own expectations, our own inadequacies, trying to make them the best versions of us or the best versions or compare them to mm-hmm. each other and, and the best versions of each other instead of looking at what God has made them to be and just nurturing that mm-hmm. so that they can grow. So here you have this experience, right, where this trickster is now making a vow with God. And he says, uh, verse 20, if God will be, this chapter 28, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all you give me, I will give you a tenth. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great (laughs) vow to make. But you saying something doesn't actually mean that you believe that because we see that Jacob is going to continue dealing with this issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to, he goes to Laban's house. He gets tricked. And uh, you have Rachel and, and Laban. I want to talk about what I think is one of the funniest texts in the whole Bible in a second. But what what do we do? What how is it that we as human beings uh, can connect these proclamations that we make about our faith with the actual ways in which we feel and the actual practices that we engage with? Mm. You know, it it seems to me that Jacob didn't really believe what he saw. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I mean, here he, God gives him this incredible vision, right, of a stairway um, resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God descending and ascending before it, basically showing that God has not removed himself mm-hmm. from Jacob, that he is very involved in Jacob's life, right? The the fact that these angels are constantly going up mm-hmm. and down from earth to heaven, just interacting with, and then God makes this promise. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and I will give you the descendants of you and the, your descendants, the land on which you are lying, re- repeating that same promise that he gave right. to Abraham. Your descendants will be like the dust of, of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Um, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. So this is an incredible promise that he receives. Yes. This is this is exactly what Abraham received. It, this is what he's asked for, this mm-hmm. birthright, right? That he's asked for, he gets to be the person of promise. And yet, when it comes down to it, he says, if God will be with yeah. me. Yeah. So he still doesn't believe still the promise. Downing. And it's very evident, in, like you said, in how he operates from this point on, that he still doesn't believe that God will be the one mm who will make all this happen Mm. for him. Again, following on that line of Abraham's sin, right? Jacob has this idea that somehow he has to take his own fate into his own hands and make his own success because God won't do it for Mm. him. And that's that brokenness. Mm. Uh, And and typically when, when you operate from this position, which is fear, bad things happen. See, you can't live out your full life in mm. Christ if you were operating from a situation of fear. Yeah. Verse tw- chapter 29, um, verse 15. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you not work uh, for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely, uh, lovely figure and was beautiful. <laughs> wow. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel But they seemed only like a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when everything came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her and Laban gave her her servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. (laughs) Now, verses 16 through 20. Just wow. <laughs> How does he describe Rachel and Leah? Leah had weak eyes. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, and Rachel was beautiful and had a lovely figure. And then this whole thing happens and it's like morning comes and behold, as of by uh, work of magic, Leah was there. Hmm. And so the... The Bible makes this story even more deliciously awkward because of the language it uses. But I think it serves to punctuate the fact that when you operate from a place of fear, you will never be able to fulfill your potential. Mm. And so that's, I think, why the call that God makes upon his people time and time again is don't be afraid. Because you can never fulfill your full calling when you operate from fear. Yeah, it's so true. And it's because often our plans don't turn out the way we expect them to turn out, right? Behold, there is Leah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, And instead of leaning into God's plan, we have Jacob leaning into his own plan, Mm. trying to make his own way and things falling apart. And then Laban, really, you know, Laban showing Jacob, again, like we talked about at the beginning, um, what it's like to go against Jacob. (laughs) Um, I I remember, I forget the name of the book, but it says that the person that we have 
um, trouble with over and over again is usually the same person mm -hmm. in different figures. And this book, according to this book, that person is actually you. Mm -hmm. You confront yourself. The person that you struggle with most is actually the person that may have the same struggle, the same brokenness that we have, that we see in them. And our brokenness and their brokenness, it's like two poles, two um, same poles of a, of a magnet. It just approaches and it just pushes us apart. Um, when And we, we really blame the conflict on the other person when we, in reality we should be looking inside mm. and saying, what is it in me that's reacting so strongly to that brokenness that I see so obviously in them? And um, God, God gives Jacob this opportunity to learn, learn from this by confronting a man that's just as um, deceiving and manipulative as he is. Wow. And the, the story doesn't end there. It's a beautiful couple of verses, right? We yeah. have issues with sheep and with wages and how the wages get shifted around time and time again. And God keeps blessing. I mean, if you want palpable experiences of God's presence in your life, those, those experiences are there. You tend to forget them. Um, Jacob leaves finally and goes back to, to his homeland and Laban pursues him. And then uh, Jacob prepares to meet Esau. And once again, mm -hmm. you find Jacob at uh, the sh shores of a, of a river trying to navigate that situation, trying to just get everything perfect so that he can finally uh, have control and control isn't there. And so I want to spend our last bit of time together uh, focusing on chapter 32, verse 22 and on. It says, that night, and this is again talking about uh, Jacob's return uh, to his father's house. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with this man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? And J Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will be no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans, and you have overcome. Jacob, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Then the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the, of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Mm. So I think three things uh, kind of pop up from this, this particular passage. Number one, Jacob's trying to control the situation. Mm -hmm. He splits up his family because he feels, well, if we all get killed, then maybe uh, some, some of them can, can get away. And now he confronts this space of loneliness and uncertainty. He finds a man then, and this, this brutal uh, struggle ensues. Uh, point number two, uh, just hang on. Stop trying to control things mm -hmm. and just hang on. And that's, I think, the one redeeming thing that I find about Jacob in this, in this is that his brokenness mm -hmm. causes him to hang on, to cling however, however he can. Um, so he clings and he says one of the most beautiful uh, requests, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Mm -hmm. Situation might not be perfect. Um, I find that this is, by the way, the formula that I use for a difficult text in Scripture. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And yet, he he is blessed, and he's still unsure. He's like, tell me your name. And in the ancient Near East, this idea of naming each other had to do with control. Mm -hmm. So the issues of control aren't gone yet. That's mm -hmm. something he's still going to be wrestle with, wrestling with. So number one. Stop trying to control the situation. Number two, cling 
Number three, you're gonna have to limp, so get used to it, right? <laughs> life is about limping. Yeah. Uh, life is about burying each other's scars. Life is about this, these circumstances that are gonna cause us agony. And so instead of trying to hide your limp or to, to attempt to show people or to portray that you're, you've got it all figured out, lean into those limps because life is about limping. So those are three things that just emerge from from this part of the passage to me. I don't know, Joey, in this story, this last kind of uh, story of Jacob wrestling with God and probably the the high mark of Jacob, the moment where Jacob's name gets changed. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that pop out to you? I think you said it so well um, that you, you see this issue of control still running through Jacob's life. But what I love about this passage is how how God seems to work with Jacob, mm. you know? Jacob has a tenacity about him. And that tenacity uh, um, originally is set towards control, like you've mm -hmm. talked about throughout the entire um, passages that we've read. It's all about control. He's tenaciously clinging to control. And yet in this passage, we see at least a little bit of a shift mm -hmm. of instead of clinging to control to tenaciously clinging to God, mm -hmm. right? And Maybe, maybe that's God stepping in and working with him and saying, the thing that you need to hold on to is not to try to control every pit of your life and your circumstances, but to cling to me and trust that I will have your back. And it seems like at least to a certain extent, he still, he still has trust issues, but at least to a certain extent, he seems to realize that he, the only way he's gonna get through this next situation is not by manipulating Esau, is not by trying to um, strategize the best formula for himself. It's not by you know training his people for war. It's by clinging to God and for God to bless him, to speak into his life. The thing that God did even before he was born, he's now realizing that's what he needs the most. And so that's what he pleads for. He doesn't plead, he doesn't plead for deliverance. He doesn't plead for um, power. He doesn't plead for the birthright at this point. He pleads for God's blessing, for God to speak mm -hmm. into his life finally starting to get that that's what he needs the mm -hmm. most and if he has that the rest of it will just fall yeah. into place yeah well that's beautifully stated i don't think we need anything else but this idea of clinging like you've mentioned so joey why don't you pray for our friends out there that they may cling to god as well yes good and gracious god we've talked about over and over again how you cling to us that you are the hound of heaven that you don't let us go even those moments where you seem far away you are near so help us to be more like you to cling to you as you cling to us to in those moments of desperation of moments of transition, moments when we are feeling, when we struggle with our sense of identity, with our sense of belonging, with our sense of purpose, that we cling to you and listen for the words you are speaking into us. Not to look for those from other sources, but to listen for you and what you've already told us, that we are your children, that you love us and you have a plan for our lives. Help us to cling to you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we continue to cling, friends, brokenhearted, limping, but still marching, marching to Zion. Have a happy week, and we'll see you next Sabbath. Mm -hmm.